I just want to dive straight in. Uh, for those of you who are joining us for the first time or you haven't been in all of them, we've gone quite, quite a way through Nehemiah. All of those are up on the website for you to listen through. If you've missed some, please do listen. But we're picking up the story in Nehemiah chapter 8. So uh, we, I, I've just got it down in text form in case you don't have your Bibles. We're going to be walking through some of that and some of chapter 10. But what we're really looking at today is some of the things that Nehemiah, and you'll see Ezra, who the book about before Nehemiah is about, come into the story and how they want to see God's people look like God's people are supposed to be. And it's the first time we see the unity of what Ezra had been doing in Israel and what Nehemiah was trying to do come together. You actually see their relationship for the first time in this part of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was predominantly concerned with the physical building of the wall. He was saying, listen, what Jerusalem looks like physically is not how it's supposed to be. It should be looking different. It should be looking the powerhouse that God has um, called it to be. Whereas Ezra, being one of the priests and a scribe, was more concerned with people's hearts. So his focus was saying, not just externally as a city, but internally as a people, you need to look like the people of God. And so he was concerned about teaching people the law of Moses, which is what they had then, predominantly the five books, first books of the Bible. Um, and what we have here is a whole melting pot of people because what's happened now is that there's been great excitement because Israel's being rebuilt. So there's the, the Israelites in Jerusalem at that time, but they've become quite diluted because there's people from different tribes, different tongues, different belief sets, and they're all living in this melting pot. And you've also got those who've been out in exile who are now returning because of the excitement. They've also been in different settings and they've all come together because of the excitement of this war being built. And now Nehemiah and Ezra decide it's now time that we really speak collectively to say you might have never heard of this before or you've heard about it in years past, but we want to tell you what God wants you to look like. We want to tell you what God's plan has always been for you as the people of God. And so it's here that these projects intersect and we see God's heart for people and heart for the Jewish people looking different to those around. And just as we've been talking about light and darkness, the way that we pick up the story is now that Christ has come and we've all been grafted into the vine as it was, his heart for us to be light, for us to be different, for us to be a people set apart. And that's what he's calling us to today. He's calling us to count the cost, to pursue purity, to shine in the darkness and to be devoted to the King of Kings. And his word. So let's dive into the passage. Uh, 8 verse 1. So all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So you just picture the scene, babies, kids, people who might not have even spoken the same language. They've got everyone together. Some would have heard of the book of Moses. Some wouldn't have. Probably would have heard something, but they might not have known it in depth. And they're all gathered in the square. So this is thousands of people. This is a, a huge gathering of people in the square at one time. So they get together and they start to listen to Ezra the priest read. So it says verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. So I'm going to take a short little, a short little stop there. So he's reading, and this is from morning until midday. So you've got to imagine this is a long period. 
They wouldn't have had nice chairs, comfortable cushions. This was sitting for a good five hours, all of them sitting, listening to this law of Moses. But do you notice that little phrase there where it says, attentive to the book of the law? They weren't, they, they weren't offered a going, oh, it's only the law of Moses. Who cares? They were attentive. They were attentive to what he was saying. Why? Because they knew that it was special. They knew it was God's word. They needed to hear God's heart on how to live. But there was this excitement. They'd seen God helping with building the wall. They'd seen him setting apart. And maybe they were remembering some of the stories of what he had done in the past. And they are attentive. So my question, and maybe a lot of this has come from uh, Billy Graham as well, how the Lord's woven it together. But how are we when it comes to God's word? Is it our cornerstone? Is it our first point of call? Or is it our last when we're not really sure where to go? Do we take God's word above everything else? Do we search God's word to find out how to live? And if our lives don't match up, we change because we want to follow his word. Or do we follow the things that we like and the things that make us feel comfortable? And when it gets to the difficult ones, that's when we take over our thinking versus God's thinking. I pray that it would be the case for us individually and as this church that God's word would always be primary. That that would be our plumb line. That would be our cornerstone. And it's so easy to do lip service. But do we let God really change us? It's easy to know scripture. It's easy to memorize it. It's easy to have a Bible in your home. It's easy to memorize things and just churn them off. It's easy to say, oh, I know that verse. Oh, I know that verse. But does it change us? Do we let it change us? So the famous, uh, I suppose the famous wedding verse would be, there's a few actually. Love is patient, love is kind. 1 Corinthians 13, well done. All the rest of you are silent. You have me to enough weddings. Okay. Uh, or or Ephesians, Ephesians 5. But those, those are kind of two of the top ones and a quarter three strands. Hey? But now we can always go, oh, we know that. That's a love verse. Easily. Love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't envy or whatever else. But do we live like that? Do we look at our lives and go, but... But if God is love and he's in my heart, am I growing in patience? Am I becoming more and more patient the longer I'm a Christ follower? Am I reducing my envy as I become a Christ follower? So do you see how it's easy for us to say, oh, we know. Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast. But do we live it? And that's the challenge for each of us is to take this and go, is this God's word first and then mine second? Or is it mine first and God's? God's afterwards. We've got to get to the place where we submit to God's word to a place where we go, Lord, my life will match up with this, not the other way around. And so it's a huge challenge for us to do that. One that I struggle with, we all will. But I want to challenge us to be a people who are continually analyzing our lives, analyzing our hearts and saying, Lord, please make me more like you and please do it each and every day. Show me if there's anything in my heart like David prayed. Show me if there's anything that isn't pleasing to you. Show me. And we open ourselves humbly to God and say, please change me. Please make me more like you. And the Israelites were attentive. They were attentive to his word. So he continues. And Ezra the scribe, this is verse 4, I think, stood on a wooden platform um, that they had made for the purpose. And beside him were a number of other people. Um, verse 5. I'm just probably just because I can't pronounce it. I'm going to skip it. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, obviously, to just get the word out. It wasn't that he was trying to be arrogant. Um, And as he opened it, all the people stood. Another thing, they stood. Why? It was a sign of honor. sign of respect. 
So as he read, they stood. It wasn't necessarily sitting for five hours. It might have been standing for five hours. I hope they had a little break. Maybe they did. But they stood to say, God's word is worthy of me taking note. I'm standing to show I respect him. I honor him. I love the Lord. So they stand. And Ezra blessed the Lord. Obviously saying God's first, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. And often in the Hebrew language, um, people would say things twice or three times to obviously give it double meaning, which we do in English as well. And amen, amen, really believing with it, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads. They worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then if it reads on a few other people, also these others, um, they helped people to understand the law, which I'll share in a short little bit. And I, I did it in the middle of music because it was in my heart. But let's be people who show that we worship God above everything else. We demonstrate it physically. So these people, Ezra didn't have to ask them to do that. They stood, they bowed their heads down, um, they they said amen, amen, and they got stuck in. Why? Because God's word meant something to them. And we can react in different ways. But I know, as I shared there earlier, when I'm watching rugby, and one that I remember most was Johnny Wilkinson, who was my hero in England rugby, when he did the drop goal left-footed and beat Australia, who are the convicts, obviously from England anyway, so it's doubly, doubly good. I'm joking, if any of you are Australian ascent, I think those guys are nice, but they were originally sent. <laughs> That's how I tease my Australian friends. But he did that, and I can guarantee you, I wasn't just going, when he did that, I wasn't just sitting there going, sweet, I just won the World Cup. What just amazing. What a kick, Johnny. Beautiful. <laughs> Great, guys, well, let's just go home. I mean, I was going crazy. And uh, I don't even like soccer. I think it's really boring. But now that I'm in a family league, easy, easy, person. Don't beat me up. Okay, so, um, so why I love it now is because I'm in a family league and I could earn pounds, which is real money. Um, so, no, it's like, it's like a 20-pound winning thing. So I did it to build a relationship with my English family. And they are football mad. So now I've decided to follow this. Um, because, not because I want the money, but because I love football. And, uh, and I asked a friend of mine who's passionate about soccer to choose my teams, because I know nothing. And he's actually done pretty well. I'm running in second place. But I can guarantee you that when I'm watching, and I'm watching on live stream, because you know they play like four games at once, and I need like my three teams to win. I mean, I, I genuinely like do some fist pumps. I might be feeding my daughter with the milk. I'm trying to watch it. Like, yes, yes, yes. I'm like, you know, three steps up. I'm getting excited. And the point is... If we can do that with earthly things, let's get excited about Jesus. Let's get excited. Let's clap. Let's jump. Let's dance. Let's show him something to show that he is more valuable than anything else. And maybe for you, you do show value by standing reverently or by sitting quietly. Maybe for you, in your heart, you are showing in that moment, oh my goodness, he's the greatest of all things. But I think for a lot of us, there's a lot more that we could be doing to show how valuable he is to us. And I'm challenged in that as well. Because sometimes I just want to jump and then I'm just like, like, I don't want to look too wacky, you know, in front of people. So sometimes I want to clap and I want to do like a weird dance and then I realize I don't really have, you know, the skills in me. But, but I worry about people. But, but by my heart said, is, Lord, I just want to celebrate. I want to celebrate what you've done for me on the cross. And I want to just, let's forget about people around us. Let's, let's corporately, collectively show him physically how much he means to us. Amen. 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 Yes. Come on. I like it. 
He is so much greater than any sport. He's greater than our, watching our kids play activities. He loves it when we show him. So let's celebrate, let's clap, let's sing, let's cheer. Let's celebrate the King of Kings and let's do it regularly. Do it at home, do it with your kids, do it at church, let's do it regularly. Verse 7. Um, I've read those people's names. Look at this part. Um, it talks. Ju- I haven't read them. I ignored them. Um, Shabbatai, Hodiah. See, I can note my sayings. And the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. It's amazing. So these people who are other priests or other helpers, they get alongside the people to help them understand what they're hearing. And whilst we don't necessarily have that in a setting now, as we grow in maturity and faith, God is going to put in our lives people who are new to the faith, people who maybe have never read the Bible before, for us to sit with, for us to help, for us to say, hey, this is why it means this. This is why the books of the Bible are in this order. Um, And to, to, to help and explain and share and give context. We're all collectively in this. And we're at different places in our spiritual faith so that we can help others. And I want to encourage us in that to be looking out for people to help when it comes to God's word. And if you're new to the faith, if you've become a Christ follower recently and if no one's got in touch with you, get hold of someone you look up to and respect and say, hey, I'd just love to know how to understand this. If this is God's word, I want to get everything I can out of it. Will you show me? And if someone's mature in the faith, they would love to help you. Because it's God's word. We get to share it with each other. So I would love to see that happening in and amongst us where we're helping people new to the faith. We're being helped as we're new to the faith in understanding God's word. So they do this and they help. And then this is what's so interesting. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Uh, Do not... Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. This is incredible. So they hear God's word, and they are so cut to the heart with what they're hearing, probably with how they are living versus what the law is saying. So probably a big change. They're so cut to the heart that they aren't living how they should be, that they weep. This is not just shedding just one tear. This is weeping. Because they understand the difference between how they've been living and the standard God has set. This is people who have now been cut to the heart and now have a high value of what God is calling them to. And we should have the same. And it's so easy for us to sweep sin under the carpet. It's so easy for us to look at sin in our lives, the gossip or whatever else. Just go, it's not the scheme of things. I didn't kill anyone. It's fine. But when we match our lives up to God's standard... Everything falls very far short. And the bottom line is we're never going to reach a standard. Hence the reason Jesus came. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. But that's not a license for us to go, great. Thank you, Jesus. I have my salvation. I don't need to work on my sin anymore. Because that actually shows we haven't understood grace. Because if we understand what Jesus has done, it leads us to repentance. It leads us to purity. It leads us to pursue Him. So my prayer is that God and His Word would become so primary in our lives that we would pursue Him no matter what the cost, that we would be devastated by the sin in our lives. Devastated. That we would turn to Jesus again and again and say, thank you for the cross, but help me to get through this. Help me 
to break through. If you and I want to see God move in our lives in a special way, it starts with realizing the gravity of our sin. Every great move of God across the earth has started with repentance. Every great move. If you look at the revivals through the ages, they've come with people on their knees like this, going, Lord Jesus, but for you we would be nowhere and make us pure in your sight. And then miracles break out. Then his kingdom breaks out because we're people hearing his heartbeat and living all out for him. And I want to see that. We want to see revival in our land. We want to see it break out in our workplaces, in our families. It'll happen when we pursue purity. It'll happen when we do that. It's my prayer that we'd break off every chain of sin that we have, any sort of addiction, drunkenness, sexual immorality, gossip, lies, arrogance, boastfulness, greed. The list is endless. It's not necessarily the item that's important. What's important is, is that we're getting rid of it. We're letting those chains be broken and we're pursuing Jesus. Some of those need to be break, broken today. Maybe we'll pray at the end. But some of us need to change how we're living right now. And God will speak to us. He, he wants us to live closer to him than anyone else. So he'll speak to you even as I'm talking. He'll just say, that's the thing. That's it. And you'll know in your heart straight away. We can often block it out and go, it's on me, I'm not greedy. I'm definitely not greedy. I, I never gossip, ever. But listen, he's speaking to you. He's dropping it on your heart and decide to say, Jesus, I'm going to break that off and I'm going to pursue you more than anything else. Nothing is worth holding back compared to Jesus and his kingdom. Then 8 verse 10, some of you may have heard of this. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone as nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. He's saying, yes, I know you're sad with your sin. But look what he's saying. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What's he getting at? When you celebrate what God's done in your life, when you understand grace, they had, Jesus hadn't come yet, but they were talking about the joy of the Lord and who he was, what he'd done for them as an Israelite people. We know that Christ has died for us. And he's saying the greatest way to get over the things that are holding you back, celebrate what he's done for you. Because when you get a big picture of the cross, when you get a big picture of grace, you're going to want to run from sin. You're going to want to. It's not going to be like, oh, Jesus wants me to get rid of stuff in my life. It's going to be like, I want to because I'm so grateful. And so the joy of what he's done for you will be your strength in defeating sin in your life. Run hard after him. He'll give you all that you need to get over the sin and to break the chains of things that are holding you back. So let's celebrate in what he's done. Let's rejoice in what he's done on the cross. And this is what they did. He said, go in and celebrate the festival of the booths. And that, what that was was really a remembrance of how they were in the desert and they were living under wreaths and everything else when God had brought them out of Egypt. It was a celebration they were supposed to do to remember how he had saved them from the Egyptian people. And so he was saying, remember what God's done. Celebrate what he's done in your life that will lead you to love him more. And so we're not, we don't have festival of booths per se now, but we must regularly remember and celebrate the cross of Christ and what that means for us that will help us to run towards him, his goodness in our lives. Right, so they keep going and they go and they celebrate and, and, and they enjoy life together. And then on the second day, verse 13, the second day the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the Lord. It is a special moment where family and community leaders 
who are in different areas of the city and outside come to further understand so they can teach their families, so they can teach their community groups, so they can teach their kids. They come to have further understanding and further training. And I love this picture because it's men taking their God-given responsibility to lead spiritually. So yes, ladies have a very important role, but there's no doubt that God has given men, dads, husbands, responsibility spiritually to lead their families towards Jesus. He's done that. That's what he's doing in the community. We need men to stand up and honor God spiritually as Billy Graham did, many others there. And so men at harvest, young men, old men, fathers, grandfathers, we need you. We need you to step up to the plate for Jesus. We can do it in other ways. We can be great community leaders in other ways. We can um, run great businesses. We can help in different community aspects. But more than anything else, our families and our communities need to know that our primary is Jesus Christ. That's what they need more than anything else. So men, and I'm talking to myself the same as well, we need you to make God a priority for you to place Jesus above all else. For the sake of your families, for the sake of God's church, we need you to take the rightful place. And my heart breaks when I see families at church without dad because he's doing something else. Or I see entire families not at church because oh, dad just didn't really feel like coming to church today, so we're just going to stay at home. And it's not like being here makes us a Christian. I understand that. But if God's church isn't a priority, there's something really out of line in our lives. God gives us as men the mandate to lead our families towards him. Only God changes hearts, not us, but he does use us. And growing up as kids, we knew, and we often talk about this with our folks, we knew that Sunday we were at church. We just knew. Nothing was going to stop that. It was just what we did. And for Sarah and I, with our girls, we're doing the same. We're saying we don't miss church. It's what we do. As Robert's family, that's what we do. It may be tough, may not always be a nice time, but that's what we do. And then that extends to, that becomes part of your kids' lives. And then as they get to teenage years or they get a bit older, guess what? They want to. Then we got to the place of saying, well, mom and dad, we do do morning church, but actually we would like to do evening church. Is that okay? Mom and dad weren't like, oh, well, it's quite a far drive, so sorry, tough for you guys. And youth as well on Friday, that's Friday night and Saturday. And there was a Bible study sometimes on Saturday as well. So sometimes it was like three nights. But you know what? My mom and dad were like, sweet. If you guys are pursuing your faith, we care. And we will make every sacrifice so that you can be growing in your faith with God. And as moms and dads, go for it. Sacrifice. Doesn't matter if it's late nights and if you have to wait and pick them up. Or if you want to go to sleep, but it's like, oh, youth only ends at 9.30. Or if it's like they want to go to an evening service. Oh my goodness, now I'm going to have to go on another drive. Who cares when they're pursuing Jesus? That's what we want for our kids. We want to see them doing thriving. My folks, maybe they did get annoyed. But we used to have to delay family holidays because of going on camp. So as kids, we basically didn't miss a camp from Form 1. And they, were, they used to have to come to us. They knew. They'd say, guys, when is it okay for us to go to South Africa? What are the camp dates? What are the youth camp dates? Can we go either side? We'd be like, yeah, that, that'll be nice. But they would actually get hold. When are the camp dates? We're booking holiday, but there is no ways. We're missing an opportunity, if you want to, to get stuck into Jesus. Because we were passionate. We wanted to be on camp every holidays. It grew our faith. They were saying, if you're passionate about that, holidays take a second, a second slot. But it's changed us. It's made us excited for God. 
and I so want the same for us as a church. I want our kids to know that Jesus is our priority. And that is the surest way to see them following Christ by a long way. And so go for it. Moms, dads, make Jesus a priority. Your kids will see it and they'll love the Lord as a result. And ladies, encourage your men to pursue God. Encourage them to pursue God because we need it. Because we definitely can't lead without Him. Definitely. We'll just do a bad job. So we need the Lord and encourage us to pursue Him in that. So we jump across last, last five minutes to uh, Nehemiah chapter 10. So um, the men come and they learn together. And we get to Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 28. So they're reading the law. And this is a little section of the law specific to Leviticus 23. He was speaking into it. But it's a specific part that I'd like to close off on. And the sandwich of repentance we'll cover next week. So the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, of the Lord our Lord, and his rules and statutes. So they get together and they say, we are going to do this thing. Now, we don't have to do oaths and curses now, but this is to show you how desperate they were to live the right way for God. Just three short ones on this. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take daughters of our sons. Interesting. And in a sense, that might look really rude and actually horrible for Ezra to say and in the Lord to say, listen, you guys are not going to marry people from different tribes. You're not going to marry people of different color. And for them to go, and you sort of say, but that's not godly because we're all, we're all one in Christ. But this was much more of a faith decision on Ezra's part and on the law rather than an ethnicity decision. This was saying that you guys, as the people of God, have a certain faith. And if you marry people of different faiths, your faith is going to become diluted. And in that age where it was actually giving, so you gave your son and daughter physically, yes, now you, you obviously want to honorably give them, but then it was a physical choosing. They were saying, don't choose for your daughter or son someone who doesn't believe in the real king because things are going to go difficult. And so one comment on that. We don't live in the setting of choosing uh, our, necessarily who our, our kids are going to marry. We have a big say as parents in it. But can I just say that the priority as moms and dads that you place on Jesus within your marriage and within a church setting will demonstrate to your kids the importance of marrying someone who believes the same. And actually, it won't even be a question in their mind. It'll be automatic because they will have their own faith. But it starts with us as mom and dad saying Jesus is priority, our marriage is priority, and as a result, and as we grow in our marriage, our kids look in and they come to faith and they get stuck into church and they wouldn't have it any other way because they've seen it modeled in the correct way. And so whether we've done it right or wrong in the past, we can always do things right from now. But you can also, if you, if you aren't married or if your kids are long gone, you can pray for the younger parents. You can pray for those with, with younger kids that they would keep Jesus primary that their marriage would honor Jesus, and as a result, that their kids would marry those who are Christ followers. We would see kingdom, uh, God's kingdom advance through offspring. And then the Sabbath. won't say too much on this, but it's interesting. And the peoples of the land bring in goods, um, 
and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. It's just a great challenge that we live in a 24-7 system. We live in a system that doesn't want us to rest. And primarily why it doesn't want us to rest is because then we think. And if we start to think, we actually start to think about the purpose of life, the meaning of life. And that's an opportunity for God to break in. But we live in a system that on the whole is very anti-God. And so if you look at it corporately and everything else, particularly the Americas and things, where it's just 24-7, you never shut down, you never have a break as people. You're always shopping, you're always doing something. Prevents us from resting, prevents us from thinking about the Lord. And so here, the people kept the Sabbath in a special way. They did nothing. They obviously worshipped Jesus, but it would have been hangout. It would have been family. It would have been inviting people in who were left out. It was a special day to rest. It was a special day. And it doesn't necessarily matter the day. But I do want to say as people, it is so important that we take a rest day that isn't a busy, hyperactivity day, but it's a day where we genuinely, purposefully take time to think on God and what He's doing in our lives. It's important. Most of us works on a Sunday. You might be in a career where actually you're a doctor or in a medical field and you happen to be working on a Sunday. That's okay. We all get a day off. But make that day a special day where we think and we analyze on the Lord. And then the final thing, as I close, it's a big section um, which you can skip down. Yeah, th- uh, 39. That's, uh, that's cool. Just back one. So perfect. As I close, from, so from verse 32, they then go on to giving and generosity. And Ian covered this a little bit. But it's basically the people coming and saying, we want to see the temple grow. We want to see the, the Levites looked after. And so we're going to bring in things. We're going to bring the first fruits of our crops. We're going to um, bring these, the animals in. And we're going to do all of this so that God's work happens in the church. There's a few helpful aspects that we learn. Um, they talk about the tithe, which does mean tenth. But this is an Old Testament term. We live under God's grace. And ironically, under God's grace, we should probably giving, be giving a whole lot more than 10% because he's actually already come. But that might not be possible. And the whole principle in this, the principle of first fruits, the principle is of giving, is actually just letting our money be under the discipleship of Christ. That's what it's about. That's what it's about, saying, Jesus, I want all of my life to come under your discipleship as well as my money. And so if you aren't giving anything, maybe say, well, Lord, I'm going to start with 1%. Maybe if you, if, if you, if you have been giving and, and, and everything else, maybe you go, well, Lord, actually, this year I'm going to ask if I can give you 30%. The principle is not the amount. The principle is our heart and Jesus coming under, us coming under his rulership and his control with our money. But one thing I'd say, I've done lots of research on this and I felt it personally, is it should hurt. If your giving doesn't have a cost, then you're not giving enough. Because what we do in our giving is we're showing God that we trust you. And for me, to give 10% when Sarah's working at St. John's and we're doing exam halls was easy. I didn't even think about God. I was like, 10%. And, we, and, and it, just, it was meaningless in our living standards because we were earning two incomes. We didn't have a lot of expenses. We had no kids. And honestly, 10%, we didn't feel it at all. It wasn't really an act of sacrifice to the Lord. And so we had to sit down and reanalyze and say, Lord, actually, for this to mean something, for us to really want to give to you, it's going to be more. And we did. And then things adjusted because then I was the only one earning. And it changed. 
And then sometimes to give anything was tough. But, but, but then to say, Lord, 10%. Lord, if I give you 10%, we're probably not going to get through the month. I don't think we're going to make it. And you know what? We've done it, and we've seen God come through in ridiculous ways. And so it's all a faith step, and it's all a putting God first step. It's not about the levels, it's not about the, the amounts. But whatever it is, these people said, God, we want you to be first in our finances. And what a privilege to see God's kingdom come as a result of that. So they gave to God first. They gave of what they had. They didn't give of what they didn't have. Prosperity theology would tell you, give out of what you don't have, and then God's going to give it back to you. So like borrow, borrow, get together, give away your car. No, you're not going to have a car, but just, just take out of what you don't have, give it, and guess what? He's going to give you double in money terms. That's not biblical. It's not biblical. So God teaches us to give out of what we have. Get, give out of what you have so that he can honor it, not out of what you don't have. And he may never give back to you monetary. He might. There's a lot of principles about that, but he might not. He might not grow what you have physically. He might. He might not. The principle is, is that he might give back to you in many other ways. So we don't give to get in a financial sense. But as we give, it's amazing. God works on our heart and he just gives in so many other avenues. Then here right at the end. Um, sorry, just back one. So they gave with the singers, and this is the last part. Um, We will not neglect the house of our God. They wanted to see the church thrive. They didn't want to see it neglected. The church was the primary role of fulfilling God's mandate on earth. Are there roles for nonprofits and other organizations? 100%. Brilliant. I worked for one for eight years. I love nonprofits to death. But, well, not to death. I don't know if I'd die for them. Um, They've got a special place. They fulfill a special role. But as you look through the Bible, does God's church fulfill a, a primary role in extending his kingdom? I would say yes. I love both. But I would say that if you don't have a special place for the church in your heart, there's a problem. And yes, the church is people. It's not a building. But we often meet in buildings together. And so if you don't have a collective love for the church and God's church, you need to just check your heart. Because Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. So we've looked at much today. I hope it's been things that have challenged you, things that you've been able to think on. I'd love us to just pray. Let's, let's just bow your heads. I want us to just key in on a few things as we close. So we've just looked at a few things, one of them being a passion for God's word. Lord Jesus, I ask as a house at Harvest that your word would be the ultimate plumb line in our lives. That we wouldn't argue, we wouldn't ignore parts that we don't like and that are uncomfortable to us, but that we would submit ourselves to your word in such a way that we adjust our lives when our lives don't match up with your word. And we don't try and adjust the Bible when we want it to match up with our lives. So please help, Lord Jesus, us to keep your word absolutely primary. I ask that you'd help us as men to lead our families well and to lead them to Christ. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to be a generous people. Ian spoke on it last week. And I ask that you would have lordship over our finances. You know where we are with our finances. No one else does. And frankly, it's not between anyone else. It's between us and God. One day, all of us will stand and give an account to what we did with our wealth, to where we invested it, to what we did with it. And Lord Jesus, I just ask for each of us in this church 
that you would help us to be disciples of you in every aspect, including our monetary resources. That we would want to see our earthly resources invested for eternal reward. That we would have our eyes fixed on eternity and that we would know that in a ridiculous, mind-blowing way, the little bit that we sow on earth can reap reward for all eternity. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to invest where it counts. Help us not to invest for 50, 60, 70 years on earth. Help us to invest for all eternity. Which is why Paul in the Bible could speak as he did. It's why he could say, we, um, we look not to the things of this world, but the, to the things of the other world. It's why he could say, we are earning for ourselves an eternal glory. I ask that we would do that with our finances, that we would live under you with our finances. And finally, Lord Jesus, I ask that we would fix our eyes on your cross, on you, Jesus, each and every day, that we would understand we can never live this life on our own. We can never do this on our own, but for you. That, Lord Jesus, we would get, gain our strength from you, that we would gain everything that we are from you so that we can live the life that you've called us to. In your glorious, precious, amazing name. Amen.